The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Alex Ewell, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for our update on tech stocks. I'm joined again by my colleague, Eric Sabitz, Barron's Associate Editor, who covers tech for us from his perch in Silicon Valley. So the, the big news today is that we have officially reached a new bull market for tech. And that's because the NASDAQ composite after yesterday's big rally is now up 20% from its recent lows, amazingly. Since bottoming on June 16th, the NASDAQ is up, you know, was up 21%. Um, the S&P 500 and Dow haven't quite seen those um, size rebounds yet, but they've also fallen less than the NASDAQ. Um, it's worth noting that the NASDAQ is still down 20% from its all-time high, though, from last November. So, Eric, the first question for you, um, is this really a long-term, a new long-term bull market? Are we just in kind of a pause um, in a longer bear market what do you yeah think? It, yeah it feels like a, a bull market rally or a bull a bull rally within a, a bear market context i think if you you know certainly if you look at like year-to-date uh performance by almost you know any major tech stock um they've all got double digit declines even the ones that have done better right you know microsoft's down 14 percent amazon Amazon's down about 15, Meta's still down about 47%, NVIDIA's down 38%. Like it does not feel like this is a bull market exactly. But what is does seem to be happening is that, um, uh, you know, we're, we've been getting a little bit better numbers on the inflation front than people had expected. That's raised the hopes that maybe the Fed won't be as quite as aggressive as we thought on interest rates. And as we've seen before, um, high growth uh, tech stocks tend to be sensitive to moves in interest rates. And, you know, the like the 10-year treasury, which was at one point, uh, you know, uh, yielding above 3% is down around 2728. So there's this sort of view that maybe things aren't quite as bad. Now, as we'll get into in a few minutes, um, there's still a lot of trouble um, across the tech world of various kinds. But I, I think that there is this sense that maybe we've seen the worst of this uh, decline. But remains to be seen. Right, right. I wouldn't I mean, be too quick to call it a bull market. Yeah. Okay. And, and your point, I mean, the NASDAQ, of course, of the major indexes has been the one that's been most sensitive to to the Fed and to rate hikes. So that's what kind of kicked off the 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 downward, the long decline. And so it's no surprise that there it's also going to see the, the, the quickest bounce back if, in fact, the Fed is nearing um, the completion of kind of its rate hiking cycle. So, you know, kind of that stands to reason. But I think you're right. Why don't we talk what we can get through into some specifics uh, stocks to kind of get a better feel for how real this um, this bull market move is, because there's definitely there is some good news. There's also a lot of bad news. Um, I wanted to start with some of the good news from today, which is Walt Disney, um, kind of a tech, a little bit of a tech name, largely because of the streaming. So let's talk about that. Disney's up about six percent today on some good news on its earnings, largely good news. Um, 
across the board, but specifically for streaming, which is pretty interesting given what we've seen in recent months from, from Netflix in particular. So tell us, um, tell us what, what your thoughts on Disney are. Why is the stock moving so much today? Um, how big a deal do you think this is? Yeah, so it's, I think it's pretty interesting. Now, part of it is, of course, that they had uh, they had good numbers on um, on uh, their parks business in the quarter. Right, right. There is this sense that consumers are, you know, itching to travel again and are willing to spend up when they do it after two and a half years or so of being, you know, sort of stuck at home for the most part. Um, and so, like, there's that element. But I do think that the streaming business. Uh, Disney is very interesting here. They they added like 14 million uh, net new uh, subscribers uh, to their streaming services in the quarter. Now that's that's not only is that you know a few million more than the street had anticipated. That's quite a contrast with Netflix, which has right. been losing subscribers for the last two quarters. And you know it it suggests it kind of underlines several trends we're seeing. One is. Um, this is a really competitive environment. Um, Netflix has been suffering in part because the competition's gotten better. Yeah. And uh, and we're certainly seeing that from Disney. And the other thing that Disney did, which is super interesting, is they're adding an advertising supported tier. Now, like lots of people have been doing that recently, including like Netflix. Netflix. Like Netflix, right. Like Netflix. And what they're doing is very aggressive. So what Netflix is trying to do is, you know, Re reignite the growth of its subscriber base by offering a cheaper version that's ad supported. What Disney is doing is they're pricing their primary existing tier, which is ad free, um, higher, and then charging the same price for what will be an ad supported tier. That is yeah. super aggressive. That tells you everything you need to know about how the two of them, how those two companies feel about their relative position right now, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I think that they are quite a contrast in their two businesses, right? So if you think about Netflix, Netflix is driven by people wanting to watch fresh content. It's not really driven by the library content. Like you could talk about however many uh, shows they might have in the library. It's kind of irrelevant. It's like talking about how many results uh, you get on a search engine if you type in the word, you know, dog. Like who cares how many? You're not going to read them all. And you're not going to watch everything in the Netflix library. What you yeah. want to watch is like the new season of Stranger Things or yeah. uh, or whatever other uh, new shows come out. I think in Disney's case, what's so interesting is that their library content um, really is valuable. And like it, it's certainly true that you know people want to watch like the new Star Wars show for their Star Wars uh, portfolio or like new content with Marvel characters and things like that. But like the if you have small children. Like what's really valuable is like the library of old Disney films and the library of Pixar films and yeah. things like that. And that feels almost like a utility. Now my children are older, but if my children were still younger, like you know that I would I would value that probably above Netflix. And well, you, I, you, I, know, I, you might you might have some thoughts on that I, too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I can tell you that. So I have um, eight and twelve year olds, uh, an eight and a twelve year old, and Disney. I would say is probably the number one service in our house now. Uh, I mean, we were talking about this. I don't even think Netflix though is number two in our. You know, so in our the ranking, if I'm just thinking about this year, is Disney probably Discovery Plus, Apple TV Plus, and then I think Netflix. So that just, you know, like we're talking about, that tells you everything about where Netflix is in its competitive place right now. Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, Netflix is uh, certainly uh, trying to fix its business with yeah. by adding this ad tier, by addressing, uh, 
you know, kind of an overly liberal policy on on uh, sharing of passwords. Yeah. But I think I think you know I've I've had uh, I've had some analysts talk to me about this. The end of the day, what's really drives these services is content. Yeah. And if you have the right content, uh, you will drive subscribers. Uh, you know, another thing that we you and I have talked about is kind of how surprisingly uh, effective Apple uh, Plus has been at producing original content. Now, they have like the opposite strategy of Disney, right? Like they don't have any library content, really. Yeah. They, they launched with, you know, a handful of new shows and no library content. And what's been remarkable is that they've, um, they've regularly pr been producing high quality content that people really... Uh, really and, watch. And, and they won the first Oscar for for a, a original film, right? Not Netflix. And they did. Yes, so. and they did. Yeah. So I just want to point out one other thing on your your point about the library of content for Disney versus the the drive for Netflix to have to produce new shows. You know, there's a sort of an economic reality there for that, which is it's a big reason why Netflix has had to spend what fifteen to seventeen billion dollars a year on new content. And I'm not saying Disney's not also spending a lot on new content, but that's a tough place to be for Netflix if you're always having to produce new content. It's part of what makes their cost uh, their cost structure so difficult. Right, right. And, and the other thing, of course, is that Disney takes the IP from the content they produce and flows it into products, yep. into licensing, to yep. the theme parks, like they. They are able to reuse the IP over and over and yeah. over again, and some of it is just sort of timeless. Yeah. Um, you know, people, kid, you know, people are still introducing their kids to Snow White, which I think came out <laughs> what in 1939. Yeah, so like uh, the content has a longer uh, shelf life, uh, certainly than yeah, uh, sure. or longer half life than. So I think I think the big kind of takeaway here, for me at least, for Disney Net versus Netflix, is you kind of have this these two companies that have been battling it out. You have a pendulum and for time, it's been moving towards Netflix's side. I think right now you're feeling, if you're an investor, you're feeling a lot better about Disney's streaming product. I would also just point out that Disney stock, you know, it, it's it's come in a lot. It's actually still looking um, somewhat cheap. I mean, you know, everything is cheap right now or cheaper, but uh, Disney's trading at like 22 times forward earnings. I think the five-year average is more it's in the high 20s. So, um, you know, arguably Disney is something worth looking at right now. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the stock is still down 24% or so. Yeah, yeah. Let's, um, yeah. Okay. I wanted to talk a little bit more on, on the sort of related topics, which is um, you were pointing out to me that um, part of the reason streaming feels more important than ever is the latest data on cord cutting that we've, that we're seeing. Um, tell us, tell us kind of what's happening there in terms of how Americans are, are watching TV these days. Yeah. So for some time now, for a number of years now, we've seen quarter after quarter, the number of Americans who subscribe to conventional cable services or even sort of, you know, streaming based cable replacement services like Who Plus or um, uh, Sling TV and things like that um, continues to ratchet lower. And I saw an interesting uh, data point from uh, one analyst who mentioned that um, by about mid 2023, the percentage of U.S. households who's, who are subscribing to one of these services is likely to drop below 50 percent, which is kind of stunning, really. Right. It wasn't that long ago when, uh, you know, everyone had uh, a subscription or something, you know, or satellite TV, you know, through the telcos. And that's just going away. And why is that going away? Because they don't have the content like if you if you want to watch Stranger Things, you don't need Comcast or Charter. Right. So. 
so I, I think that that trend just accelerates uh, the shift to streaming. I mean, it, it's it, it. In fact, I think it's contributing to uh, what this this uh, uh, emergence of uh, advertising is a greater. A piece of the streaming story because yeah, yeah, you know, you're trying to reach people somehow. Now, I think the the last bastion here is sports, right? So, so it's still true that most sports content is still on uh, either cable or broadcast networks. All right, you know, you watch on Fox or CBS or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, but it, but there, there's uh, the dam is starting to leak, right? Like Apple, you know, has a has a baseball. Um, uh, package on Friday nights. They uh, they got a new contract recently for MLS uh, for soccer, and you know there's a lot of suspicion that they may they or Amazon will uh, will likely win uh, the NFL uh, um, Sunday ticket package. That will be a huge. That's going to be a huge turning point that people are probably under underestimating. Um, yeah, they- and it's like if I don't need it to watch sports, then. Yeah. Um, unless you're just addicted to cable news, like I, I just can't see why there's any real value. In and I, I mean, I can speak to my like all of my baseball watching now, and I, I live in a market outside of the team I watch. And I'll just give a shout out to the Orioles who are now in the playoffs, <laughs> amazingly. But I watch all of my TV through the Major League Baseball streaming app. I think you do the same with the Phillies, right? So yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, yeah, who are also having a great uh, <laughs> revival, by the way. Um, I think I think yeah. So I can't wait till we do like the Phillies Orioles World uh, Series. It'll be we'll definitely do a uh, Barons Live on that. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, yeah. I mean, I I think that's that's the key. So I think it's it's really bad news for uh, for you know for Comcast and for Turner, but I think it's also really a sort of existential problem for the companies that are still spending a lot of money producing content for uh, you know linear TV. I, I just I just don't. I just don't think that that's a business that's ever going to come back. And so, uh, you know, it, it, streaming is one. Uh, yeah. for, for, all, for all the short-term issues involved, streaming is obviously one. Yeah. Okay. So last time we talked, we had a big, you know, a lot of discussion. There was a lot to talk about with big tech because they had just reported their earnings. Um, now we've kind of, we're at the tail end of earnings season. We've had the smaller companies reporting and there've been some still interesting takeaways there. So one of the companies I wanted to talk about was Sonos, which makes uh, really the pioneer in, the, in smart speakers, um, really high, very high-end, well-reviewed audio equipment. Um, and they reported, I believe it was last night, um, or, or yeah, and, and the numbers, uh, this week, and the numbers were just terrible. So what do we take away from, from Sonos? You know, a smaller company, but possibly some good, some good lessons there. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the numbers on Sonos were kind of shocking. Uh, so, you know, for example, uh, they so they have a their fiscal year ends in September. So they only have a quarter quarter, quarter to go, basically. And uh, they cut their guidance for the full year by like, oh, I think it was like 10 percent or 20 percent. Like they, they severely reduced their guidance and they kind of blamed it on uh, the macro economy. They basically said, uh you know, consumers are uh, tightening their uh, spending that uh, and they're not spending on, um, you know, uh, what are arguably uh, optional purchases on, you know, wireless audio equipment. Now, it's also possible that they 
uh, you know, they they're losing market share someplace. But like yeah, yeah. their view is like that that this is a macroeconomic problem, and they're going to return to double digit growth when this is all done. Um, you know, the street with the stock down almost twenty five percent today, the street's obviously a little bit skeptical um, about the their ability to to uh, quickly recover from this. But it, it is. It is telling and it is consistent with some other things that we've seen, right? Uh, think about what's going on in the PC market where demand is kind of collapsing. Um, and uh, this is uh, affecting lots of different companies. It's We're seeing slower growth also in smartphones. Uh, the gaming segment is in trouble here with uh, uh, across the board. So there's a lot of signs that consumers are pulling back. And, uh, you know, it, and you saw it with some of the e-tailing numbers. Amazon, while it had a pretty good quarter overall, um, thanks to in part to the cloud business, their e-commerce business was, you know, down like 4% year over year. So, yeah. like, there's a lot of signs of trouble on the consumer side. And, so. and, and I think um, we can talk more about this later. If I'm Apple today or if I'm an Apple investor today, that Sonos number does make me a little bit concerned because it's a similar consumer category, I think, in terms of high-end, you know, equipment. It's not, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of crossover between iPhone owners and Sonos owners. So we can talk more, a little bit more about Apple. Um, but before we get to that, um, the other kind of piece of bad news that relates to sort of what you were just talking about was uh, earlier this week, I think it was Monday and Tuesday, we got these consecutive days of bad news from chip makers, right? NVIDIA, I think it was Monday, cut its outlook. Then Micron the next day, which makes uh, memory chips, cut its outlook. Both stocks fell uh, somewhat on the on that news. What what's happening there? How important do you think um, those news items are? Yeah, those are uh, th those are important. And I would note, by the way, that they follow a similarly grim outlook from Intel. Right, right. Uh, when they reported earnings recently, um, you know, Intel blamed their problems largely on. Uh, softer PC demand, although they also had disappointing uh, demand uh, from the data center, which seems to be more about them than it is about uh, overall demand. They're losing market share to AMD. In NVIDIA's case, um, it seems to be tied to a softer market uh, for gaming. There's, uh, they're, they're, they make, you know, uh, 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 processors, graphics processors that are used by gamers, both in consoles and PCs. Now, and some of those pictures and for crypto mining, I would and just for crypto mining. So there's some in, yeah, that that has been a boost to them in the past, and in the current environment, probably yeah. is not helping. No longer, yeah, right. And in Micron's case, Micron in many ways was almost the most surprising because you know. So first of all, Micron is on a different reporting cycle. They their quarter ended in May, not June. So they actually reported results at the end of June. So uh, you know, what is that, five or six weeks ago, and they have cut their guidance from what they gave like five or six weeks ago. So that was the surprising part in Micron's case. Huh. Yeah, They talked about, um, you know, they, they've talked again about uh, lower demand from PCs and smartphones, but they also said that there were some signs of softer demand from the automotive sector. Now, like, that's like a, that's a, 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 a bell ringer of a moment, if that's true, because... Uh, you know, we've all been under uh, the assumption that the auto industry can't get enough parts, which is why there's like no inventory on the average car lot. And, you know, people are selling cars or uh, the automakers are, uh, or the dealers are often selling cars above invoice because they can't get 
cars, if there's suddenly some problem with demand from the automotive industry, that's a real problem. Now, I would note that in Micron's case, they don't make the parts that people can't get. Like they make memory chips. There's more and more memory chips in the average car. Yeah. Could be just an inventory situation on the, the automotive side where they, you know, they've stocked up on inventory of memory and they still can't get, you know, the other parts that they need. But when you put it all together, uh, what you see is uh, a really bad situation for the, uh, for the chip industry. And how ironic that this is all happening just as President Biden signs the CHIPS Act, uh, which, which is intended to help uh, support the uh, acceleration in growth of the U.S. chip manufacturing sector. So that's you know, useful for, uh, for Intel. Of course, let's, let's remember, most chips are not made in the U.S. Most chips are made in, um, in Asia, in particular in Taiwan, yeah. uh, which, of course, is a geopolitical football at the moment. Yeah. Um, so, so we now it's also okay. interesting that I'll just make one other point and let's, and then, before I finish my uh, sure. track, so which is that like if, if you think about the origin of the Chips Act, like it was it, it was unfolding like during the pandemic when we were having this problem where you couldn't get enough chips. And so we need to you know generate more capacity. Right? And um, and now, of course, it feels like uh, we maybe we have too much capacity. Micron, in fact, said that they were going to spend a lot less in 2023 than in 2022 on, on adding new capacity. Uh, but I think there's a, there's a sort of this separate dynamic around uh, geopolitics and the, uh, the, the, you know, inherent risk, the, I guess, arguably the uh, uh, defense uh, related risk, the, the, the your security risk of being overly reliant on Taiwanese semiconductors. So it's kind of a complicated landscape, yeah. uh, but I think, uh, you know, it's a tough time for these stocks for sure. Yeah. And, and just on the Chips Act bit, I mean, because I think you're right, it's a fascinating contrast. Um, Micron, and this is much longer term. So just, you know, aside from what they were saying for the short term, I believe they also announced this very long term kind of almost 10 year investment in the U.S. Uh, alongside the Chips Act of like a 40 billion dollar um, U.S. investment. Right. So. Right. And that's in, uh, that, you know, that's in uh, upstate New York, uh, Malta, New York, where they already have. um Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm talking about a different company. That's Global Foundries. So I was going to get to in a second. But yeah, Micron has has chips has chip uh, manufacturing in multiple places in the U.S. and yeah. um, and they are one of the handful. Uh, there are not very many, right? Yeah. Intel, of course, uh, is very excited about the Chips Act. They're building out. They're spending like a hundred billion dollars a year. A hundred billion dollars, not a year. A hundred billion dollars to build out fabs um, yeah, in Arizona, Arizona, and Ohio, and also um, in Europe. Um, I do want to mention Global Foundries. Yeah, yeah. Mention, why should we care? What, what do we? What do yeah, we? What so do we Global Foundries is an interesting uh, chip manufacturer that they they they're like the opposite of like say Intel, which is trying to make cutting edge like the most technically sophisticated chips with you know the tiniest line widths that kind of stuff. Global Foundries is lagging edge. Like they're making all these like you know, microcontrollers and like other like small, uh, low priced parts, the kind of things that the automakers can't get, right? So uh, then they go into automotive applications, into industrial applications and whole range of other things. Um, you know, they are a contract manufacturer. They make them for, for their customers. They announced, uh, for example, they make uh, parts for uh, Qualcomm. They just announced a new deal with Qualcomm. And they're actually, ironically, they're, they're, uh, they were once part of AMD. They were spun yeah. off from AMD. Didn't they just go public 
uh, pretty recently. Uh, only recently public. I forget the exact timetable. But what's interesting about them is, so they just reported earnings this week, and their earnings were actually really good. Their guidance is really good. Their margins are increasing. Um, and they also are building new fabs. So that's where Malta, New York comes from. Uh, so they have a they have a fab there, and they're going to build a second one uh, with some help from the Chips Act and uh, some you know forward some some agreements, some creative financing for some of their customers. And they they think demand is still great. Like they there aren't too many players in this end of the market. Actually, if you ask them about their competition. Uh, they say the biggest competitor is actually Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the largest player in this market uh, yeah. by a long ways. And the company that, you know, should something happen with Taiwan, that's the one company we will all be wor most worried about. Because yeah, they for sure. Overall. Changes the equation for all these chip companies. All right. Um, I wanted to go to a question. Um, John has asked, please discuss, and this is a, this is a broad question, um, please discuss NVIDIA, Microsoft, and Apple. We've talked about NVIDIA a little bit already. So why don't you give us uh, some thoughts on Microsoft and Alphabet quickly? Sure. So, um, so I take uh, th there's a, there's some things they have in common, and then there's some things that are sort of separate. So what they have in common is they're both plays on the cloud, right? So if you think about Microsoft Azure, Alphabet is Google Cloud, and then um, you add in uh, sort of Amazon Web Services. Those are the three largest cloud players. They all had fantastic growth in the in the June quarter. They're all going to keep growing, uh, as far as the eye can see, at like substantial double-digit rates. We're just nowhere near done this trend. Um, you know, I, I I wrote a very bullish story about Amazon uh, in the magazine recently that was really tied to AWS and 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 the hopes for the cloud. And I, I think that just continues. Now there there are some separate factors in Microsoft and Alphabet's case. Microsoft still does have PC exposure, right? I mean, they they still make you know uh, Windows and Office and they make, you know, Surface PCs. They also have exposure to the gaming market with Xbox. They have some exposure to the advertising uh, uh, space with, yeah. on, on LinkedIn. So they, they have some offsets, but I, I think overall, you know, they're, they're going to continue to produce double-digit growth there. They, uh, they said on the most recent quarter, uh, quarterly call, that they expect, uh, you know, double-digit growth in revenue and um, and income um, and net income in, in the quarter. Uh, I'm mean, sorry for 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 uh, 2023, and that that's uh, that's a remarkable achievement for a company that size. I'm still feeling pretty good about Microsoft. I think yeah. in the Alphabet story, the difference is all about advertising, and there's really two pieces to it. I mean, I, I think that the YouTube piece uh, looks a little more like uh, a little more challenged. It looks a little more like Meta and Snap in terms of their exposure to like the brand advertising market, but, but their search business is doing fine. And I think that you're starting to see uh, while while ad budgets are shrinking at the moment, uh, that is the search is like the last place uh, you're going to cut. And I think their search business is going to do fine. I'm not, uh, I'm not all that worried about Alphabet. I think they'll be. Okay. And I would just note um, from a valuation perspective, uh, Microsoft trades at about 23 or so, 22 times forward earnings. I'm sorry, Alphabet trades at 22 or 23 times forward earnings. Microsoft continues to hang out in kind of the upper 20s, around 28. So Alphabet, um, not as cheap as it was, but it's um, 
it's still a good bit cheaper than Microsoft. So that's just something to uh, now for maybe for good reason, but that's something to, to consider um, as well. All right, we have another interesting question. And Eric, I might be putting you on the spot here, but tell me, I'm just interested in your thoughts. So Linda asks, um, Linda notes that we're getting this new 1% tax on buybacks in the climate and um, tax bill that's uh, likely to pass, it's passed the Senate, likely to pass the House later this week and be signed into law. And she's wondering, um, I think it's a good question, you know, are companies going to do more buybacks to kind of get ahead of that that the, the, that tax going into effect? How big a deal is that for some tech companies? She, I mean, we, Microsoft, um, Apple is a huge buyer of stock, um, Alphabet. Do you think that this could actually be a market moving event if they're going to just be boosting their stock buybacks in the near term to get ahead of that tax? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's a one percent tax, so. I don't. I don't think that's big enough uh, to really move the needle very much on their behavior before or after it goes okay. into effect. I mean, I, I think. Look, I think that uh, uh, you know, you look at uh, so like Apple is the most obvious one here, where they have uh, continued to be extremely aggressive about uh, buying back their stock. They've been working down their cash position. Uh, they've been buying more than twenty billion dollars of stock every quarter. Um, you know, what's the tax on that? You know, a few hundred million dollars potentially. I, I just think it becomes a bit of a rounding error. And unless, uh, I, I mean, I think if it was a higher tax, uh, you you might have, you, you might see uh, some shift in the way companies return cash to shareholders and maybe boost dividends. Right, right. Um, but I, I, it still feels, you know, I think in many cases, companies still think that buying back stock is a, you know, kind of a tax efficient, generally a tax efficient way to return capital to shareholders. And right. I doubt it has too much of an impact. I mean, I, I, I just think they're already buying aggressively. I don't. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree. I, w I would, I would also note that this 1% tax, while it's gotten a good bit of attention, is a is kind of a small move, given the fact that it's not that long ago that uh, lawmakers, I think on both sides of the aisle, have sort of talked about the idea of trying to ban buybacks altogether. So at least right now, this 1% tax feels like a, a, a much smaller step, certainly, than that. Yeah, it's like, it feels like a nuisance tax. It's like, you know, like if you raise, I don't know, it would be like if you if you increase the tax on the, I don't know, gasoline by two pennies a gallon or something, like would that change anything in your behavior? Probably not. You might be annoyed by it, but like, I, I just don't think this is going to change anybody's behavior. Okay. Interesting. All right. Two more things. I wanted to, um, I promised we would talk a little bit more about Apple. So, you know, Apple is not that far off its earnings announcement, but in fact, they are most likely due for another big announcement, which is because each September, with maybe one exception in the pandemic, they, they launched their or announced their new iPhone. So we're headed to that, the iPhone 14. Um, I don't know much about the iPhone 14. What, what, what are your thoughts there? How big a deal is this for Apple? Yeah, well, I mean, every iPhone launch is a big deal for Apple. I mean, I would note that like in the most recent quarter, they actually had very strong iPhone sales, uh, surprisingly strong iPhone sales. I think they, they, they beat street estimates on iPhone sales. Um, I think in part because they had a slightly less pressure uh, on the component and manufacturing side that they had feared. They had forecast for the quarter, like a pretty big hit uh, from uh, supply chain issues and actually had a smaller hit than they had expected. I think that was a, that was a, a lot of what was going on. I think also, you know, I, there is an element where uh, smartphones feel like a, 
uh, you know, a must-have. They're a, uh, they're not an optional uh, option. Not like Sonos, not optional like Sonos speakers, right? They're not like Sonos speakers, right? Like you know, you can get away without a Sonos speaker. You probably don't want to have uh, get away with no. I mean, imagine you know, if your smartphone broke today, you'd be at the Apple Store this afternoon. So, right. Um, I, I I think you know, there's a there's there's an element of of that that helps them. I, I you know, I do think that it's true that you know we're now like iPhone 13 was a kind of incremental advantage over iPhone 12. 12 was the uh, what was a big moment because it was the first five, the first 5G iPhones. Yep, yep. iPhone 13 felt kind of incremental. I would note I have an iPhone 13 sitting here on my desk. Um, iPhone 14, like there's not very much buzz yet about iPhone 14. I, I think I, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to get. I I I would uh, would hardly be a surprise to see that we got you know um, a little better camera, a little better battery life, you know, maybe a little faster processor. But like, I, I think that, you know, the form factors are kind of set. It doesn't seem very likely that the phone's going to get any bigger because it becomes impractical to get bigger. It could get a little thinner. I mean, like these are all incremental changes. And so the question is, will it drive enough of a replacement cycle? I mean, I right. think that the, the question uh, in a way is how large is the base of people who are still running, you know, iPhone 10s, eights and tens, right? Yeah. Um, so, so uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I think it is noteworthy, by the way, that uh, it's almost kind of remarkable. Like uh, Apple stock is down less than five percent year to date. Like it's actually held up remarkably well. It still has, uh, you know, market cap. Their market cap's back up to two point seven trillion dollars, way above the next. It is, it is remarkable. We talked, I think, on the last call about. It's particularly remarkable because of all in a consumer slowdown or in a worries about a consumer slowdown, we're talking about the company that is most exposed to the consumer among big tech. And so it is very, it's, it, it, it's, it's a bit of a paradox. Yeah. I mean, what, what, so like if you, I'm just looking, you know, eyeballing the numbers here. Like if you, uh, you know, Apple is worth uh, just to choose like a random example, you know, more than Amazon and Tesla put together. Yeah. So, I mean, it, the the numbers are uh, are are pretty remarkable. So, I, I mean, essentially, Apple does have a lot on the line here with this Apple uh, fourteen with the with the iPhone fourteen launch because if it's bad, I mean, you know, iPhone is more than half of their revenues, and, and also uh, the installed base of iPhone users drives their services business for sure, uh, which is you know uh, has has been double digit grower, yeah. and it's and it's likely that their MacBook business will not continue to power any additional kind of upside given what we've seen in PC sales. At least that would be my, my yeah. guess. Yeah. Uh, now, Mac sales really took off during the pandemic. And it is certainly true that they, you know, that the, the whole Mac line has been re-energized by their yeah. uh, shift to, you know, homegrown processors. True, true. But PC demand is not great. And I just don't think Apple's going to be an exception. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're almost out of time. Let's do one more. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about, uh, SoftBank. Um, SoftBank, you've written about a lot over the years. It's you know mostly a holding company of, of tech startups and some tech public holding companies at this point. They're arguably the world. They are the world's largest venture capital fund inside this publicly traded entity. They're a company that looks has looked really good when tech stocks are doing well because of those holdings, and then they look really bad when tech stocks are doing poorly as they have been. And they had a pretty bad earnings announcement this week. Um, they're very, you know, their visionary founder, if you call him that CEO, Masayoshi-san, was very apologetic about how this business has, has gone. Tell us where we are with SoftBank. It feels like just sort of a, 
still feels like a bet on the future of technology. So, you know, what, what do we do with it? Yeah, it's kind of a leverage bet on the future of technology. I mean, SoftBank had um, what must be one of the worst quarters any company has ever reported. I mean, yeah. they they lost, um, I think, $24 billion in the quarter, which is, um, you know, that's remarkable. That's a, that's a very large number. The company has a market cap of like $65 billion. So like that, like just to put it in perspective, and most of those losses came in their two big venture funds, uh, the Vision Fund and Vision Fund Two. Um, Vision uh, Vision Fund One was about a hundred billion dollar portfolio. Vision Fund Two, which is about two years, uh, uh, was only about well, I guess about three years old now, was about a fifty billion dollar uh, portfolio in terms of assets invested, and they lost about ten billion dollars at each of those two funds. That's unbelievable. I mean, Vision Fund Two is now about twenty percent in the hole since it's. Uh, since it's launched, that's very bad performance. Vision Fund One still has gains for about twenty billion dollars, so let's call it about you know twenty twenty five percent. Venture capital, but venture capital high risk, high return, right? So we're just yeah, so high risk, high return. Now I would note to give them credit, like they have had, uh, they've been involved. Look, they've been involved in both some huge successes. Um, they were investors in Uber and DoorDash and. Um, you know, like a whole bunch of, of, of successful IPOs. They've done close to 50 IPOs um, in since the, the launch of the Vision Fund in 2017. But they've also had terrible disasters. I mean, they they've lost literally billions of dollars on WeWork. Um, there's a company called Greensill, which has got a lot of attention, which was a you know fintech company that has collapsed and is in insolvency. Like they've had some big misses. In this quarter, like what happened is basically that valuations collapsed. They they still own uh, their va- valuations have fallen both for public and private technology companies for all the reasons we all know. Um, they also have uh, a substantial continue to have a substantial stake in Alibaba. Um, they've actually done a transaction doing like a forward sale where they uh, they it's like a kind of a complicated way of like bringing in cash now from their Alibaba position, but they still right. own more than $30 billion worth of Alibaba. Um, and, you know, they, so they've, they, they're, they've suffered. Now, I think the interesting question is what happens from here. And well, if you think valuations are going to improve um, for tech stocks, not a bad way to bet. So I'll give you just on, one. On, on SoftBank, it's not. On it's, SoftBank. Yeah, SoftBank. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, and- well, I'll give you just a couple of, I know we're tight on time, but I'm going to give you a couple of like just data, a couple of little data points. One is uh, they own ARM, uh, the semiconductor design company. Uh, they bought ARM for like $32 billion in 2016. In 2020, um, NVIDIA had agreed to acquire ARM for like $40 billion. Uh, and uh, that deal fell apart because of regulatory concerns. But that's a valuable asset. They they intend to take it public. They would have probably taken it public by now if not for the fact that the IPO market is largely shut down. But right. that asset alone is worth, you know, let's let's say it hasn't appreciated at all since 2016, which is, you know, more than conservative, I think. Um, that's worth more than $30 billion. Um, and you know they they they're also still they're also trying to find a buyer for a uh, they own an investment management company called Fortress Group. Uh, that's for sale. That's probably worth a few billion dollars. Um, and they still own you know as I say thirty billion dollars worth of Alibaba. And they own pieces of some other companies. They own a baseball team in Japan. And I think the biggest positive is you're starting to see some improvement 
in the performance of some of the things that they own. Like, so just in the last day, uh, they own, a, they own, for example, a, a big piece of a company called Coupang, which is a South Korean e-commerce company. It's quite large. They dominate the market there. And Coupang reported not just good earnings, but uh, better than expected guidance. The yep. stock's up like 4 or 5% today. And that's all helps all right. SoftBank. So uh, I'll leave you with one last thing on SoftBank, which is I would note one of the things that's interesting about SoftBank always has been true is that their asset value is way in excess of their market cap. Yeah. Um, it's about twice the market, the, the value, the, the net asset value is about twice the current market cap of the company. Um, if, you know, if sentiment was to change on SoftBank, there's potentially a lot of upside. A lot of upside. And I, I think it comes, so that, that is really interesting. And I think it does kind of come for a full circle back to our original question. And we can just leave it at this. And, and hopefully we've given folks something of an answer here. But if you're, if you're in the view, if you're of the view that tech has kind of resumed its, its long ride back up, SoftBank certainly looks cheap right now. Um, and then if, it, if we're in a longer bear market and this is just a bit of a break, well, then you, you might want to stay away. <laughs> you might want to stay away. So um, hopefully we've given folks some, some stuff to think about there. Eric, this was great. Um, I know we did go over a little, but hopefully everyone uh, got, got a lot of useful info. So thanks again. And we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. We hope uh, everyone will listen to our next episode of Barron's Life tomorrow. Uh, two of our colleagues from Investors Business Daily, Harold Morris and Alyssa Quorum, will be talking about how to position your portfolio for the current market environment, which industry groups are showing out performance, and how to uncover some of the best stocks to buy right now. So thanks to everyone for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.